1991, director Jonathan Demme and star Jodie Foster introduced the world to the psychological thriller focused on the deranged mind of a killer. In 2021, the Jim Beam Company takes a regional product national. The film is Silence of the Lambs. The whiskey is Old Tub. And we'll review them both. This is the The Film and Whiskey Podcast. Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we are looking at the 1991 Best Picture winner, The Silence of the Lambs. Brad, this is kind of lining up at a perfect time for us. We are in the middle of Women's History Month. This movie has one of the best female protagonists of all time. And it's also kind of kickstarting a new series for us where we're going to be looking at Best Picture winners. So we've selected a number of Best Picture winners in the lead up to next month's Oscars. I'm super pumped to use this movie as our bridge movie to talk about today. You know, Bob, I'm just going to be upfront and honest. This is one of those movies that when you were a young lad in the early to mid 1990s, you would be perusing the the walls of a of your local blockbuster. Uh, Blockbuster, for those of you young enough, was a place where you went to like get movies <laughs> and you gave them money and you brought them home for like a week. Is, is that a good uh, explanation? Bob? Yeah, I think it is. <laughs> but yeah, I would go to Blockbuster and I would see this movie on the shelves and there was just something about it that was absolutely terrifying to like five, six, seven year old me. And I don't know if that horror has ever left me. And I've I've like refused to watch this movie. Uh, so I just want you to know that I still haven't watched it. And we're just going to make stuff up. <laughs> please, please tell me that's a joke. <laughs> Bob, the best part is that there's a part of you that really is wondering. Oh, right I now. absolutely am, Brad. <laughs> no, I I did watch the movie for this. I just want you to know how much I love you, this podcast, and Film and Whiskey Nation enough to overcome this deep-seated childhood fear. Well, I'll tell you what, man. It is a justifiable fear because there are elements of this movie that are absolutely terrifying. It is one of only a handful of movies uh, that could be considered a horror movie that have ever been nominated for Best Picture. Brad, we're going to get into it. We're going to break it all down. We're going to talk about your first time watching this movie. But in order to do that, we need to welcome in some special guest hosts. We have Chad and Sarah with us from the YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night. Chad and Sarah, how are you guys doing? We're doing great. Pretty good. Thank you so much for being along on the ride uh, watching this highly uncomfortable film. Uh, I'm I'm really excited to see how we talk about this one. As we kind of intro the movie, before we talk about anything else... What made you choose this movie to come on our show and talk about today? Um, Ooh, that's a good question. That is a good question. I mean, I, <laughs> shocker, <laughs> uh, love serial killer information. I don't know, like <laughs> documentaries, suspense, she, she, thrillers. She refers to them as how-tos. Well, sure, I, sure. <laughs> really, it's more of a how-to-not. <laughs> right, uh, how to true. not be kidnapped and have your skin worn as a suit. Um, that's more of a... <laughs> oh, live a little. Never it's help real, a man to put a really couch in his car. It's really useful information. 
Yeah. yeah. <laughs> These are things. Honestly, I was a little worried that you were just going to leave it at, I love serial killers. Oh, I love serial killers. That's no, why she I married don't. me. I still <laughs> haven't been caught. No, I just, I find, I think it's, you know, some people will be like, why are you scared of monster movies, but not serial killer movies? And I'm like, I don't know why I think I find there's comfort in like seeing it play out this real life threat and like. Hmm. Think seeing how things happen and thinking like how would I defend against that? It's almost soothing in a way. Mm. I don't know. That's probably weird. No, it's, it's cathartic no. to think about how you defend yourself. Right. Yeah, exactly. I get it. I'm trying to prepare myself. Right. For Building sure. a toolkit. Chad, why did you pick this movie? Um, I, I would say I to watch yes, it. exactly. <laughs> I, I was kind of like, ooh, a league of their own. That's fun. Like a um, like a good husband. I was like, absolutely not. We need dark and mysterious. I, mean, I, I can't remember. The list now, but wasn't like Wally on there or something? Oh yeah, and I was that like, was my second choice. I was like, oh Wally, uh, uh, League of <laughs> Their Own, you know, and and Sarah was like, Sounds of the Lambs. I was like, Yeah, Sounds yep, of the Lambs. That's the one. <laughs> so Sarah, your your like movie preferences are either serial killer movies or Pixar. Correct. Now, when they I'm can in. combine the two, <laughs> that is a, that is the next Oscar winner. <laughs> that's a day we're looking forward to. <laughs> I mean, I'd watch it. Absolutely. <laughs> it would be great. All right, guys. So can you break down for us a little bit about, you know, the the creation of the YouTube channel, maybe how you guys met? Some of our listeners, I'm sure, are familiar with you. You have an incredibly successful YouTube channel. I am a huge fan. I've been subscribing for a couple of years now. Uh, oh, but thanks. but yeah, absolutely. Thank you. I have to thank you even before you get started on your intro for introducing us uh, to the phrase Kentucky Hug which is oh. something that we have uh, wholeheartedly stolen from you. And it is, it's really, really helpful for us to use as we talk about tasting whiskey. So well, thank you for the Kentucky hug, first of all. Yeah, absolutely. We will uh, Kentucky hug anyone who wants to be Kentucky hugged. We can't take <laughs> credit for it. Uh, credit goes to uh, Fred No from Jim Beam. But yeah, we definitely can take a little bit of credit for spreading it around. It's more, meant to I be guess. shared. Yeah, absolutely. Chad, I, I'm curious, it, would your serial killer name be the Kentucky Hugger? Yeah, I, oh, yeah man. I, I got a pretty good bear hug, so I would, you know, it would start off nice, and they'd be like, oh, this is a little uh, a little too tight there, buddy, a little uncomfortable, and then he'd be like, eh, help, and then it's lights out. We are off to a great start, you guys. <laughs> I'm not sure how I feel about that. <laughs> so uh, walk us through, like, the creation of the YouTube channel and, and how you guys came to be where you are today. Oh, goodness. Um, I'll try to make it the I tend to go off on tangents, so I'll try to make it the abridged version. But um, we we're both working. Uh, I was working in a marketing department for a restaurant group that was opening a bourbon bar. Um, so I was getting really interested in bourbon because I was like, hey, I've lived in Kentucky my whole life. Now I'm working on this bar that's going to have 200 plus bourbons. I probably couldn't even name 20. Uh, so I was like, OK, I'm starting to get more into bourbon. We were shooting a video for that particular bar that was opening. Chad worked on the video crew. We met. Uh, we did a couple different shoots over the course of a few months. So we started hanging out and uh, doing our own bourbon nights um, as friends. We we kept it as friends for a while. Uh, then we realized as we were doing these bourbon nights where we would do tastings and flights and things like, wait a second, Chad, you're in video production. I'm in marketing. Our powers combined. We could create a YouTube channel. <laughs> we'll be unstoppable. Right. No, it was really more of just like, hey, we're doing this. Why not try to make something fun out of it, even if it's just a hobby that is for ourselves. We never really expected 
much to come of it i mean yeah. i remember one day we were like can you imagine if we ever had like a thousand subscribers like what if we ever had ten thousand subscribers that would be crazy that's not <laughs> even real and now here we are <laughs> yeah uh it's been it'll be five years this june that we've been working on the channel mm -hmm. and i mean it still feels new though it feels like we just started it yesterday and it also feels like we've been doing it for forever because the community is so amazing and they just feel like family and i can't imagine you know, doing anything else, to be honest. True. I had always kind of been looking, well, not always, for, for a couple of years, I'd had the idea of a YouTube channel in my head and I was kind of looking for the right person to do it along with me because I knew that I wasn't going to do it solo. He scouted me. Yeah. So then when Sarah <laughs> came along, I was like, ah, this, we met for a reason. Yes. Let's, let's do this. Let's do this YouTube thing. So it just and made then, sense. You know, of course, we spent a lot of time together and there was bourbon involved. And, yeah. you know, a lot of trips, travel, and just got to know each other over time. And, mm -hmm. you know, eventually Chad was like, so do you want to get married or what? And I was like, <laughs> yes. I, I just, Did you just I head can't... down to the courthouse then? No. Um, <laughs> I mean, I definitely thought about it. But, no, we ended up doing the whole big thing. And it was like... It was it, great. What, the fall of 2019? So literally mm -hmm. one of the last big events that we did <laughs> before. Got wow. in under the or wire. COVID, right, yeah. Yeah. So. Well, I was going to say, you guys are located in uh, Lexington. One of the, my favorite weddings that I've ever officiated was right in uh, Triangle Park, right downtown. It was like in the middle of December at midnight, and I did a wedding for people, that, and there's like 50 people there, and it was a blast. That's wow. awesome. So I will say what, what Brad was talking about is a perfect segue because as I was reading your background and, and kind of the inception of this uh, this YouTube channel, I realized that we actually had a ton of overlap because Brad and I were actually going to grad school in Wilmore while you guys were starting this channel. And so uh, when I was reading like, you know, some interviews that Sarah had done where she talked about starting this bourbon bar, I was like, oh, my gosh, that has to be OBC Kitchen. Right. And. And then I realized that was the first bourbon bar I ever went to. That was where I kind of fell in love with bourbon. And I remember going there with my wife and looking at the awesome B-roll that was playing on the TVs. And, and now knowing that that was Chad that filmed that and that, Sarah, you were like launching that bourbon bar. Like, that's mm -hmm. it, it's just incredible to me. Like, I used to go there as a poor grad student and wait until the kitchen closed at 10 o'clock and ask them if they had any more, you know, uh, bacon with peanut butter to dip it in. Oh. And they would just give it to me and it was like heaven. And so I feel like I, I have to express my gratitude for that place to both of you for making it so special to me. Well, they're not supposed to feed strays. No. Oh, my um, God. <laughs> no. You know. That's so nice to hear. You know, no, that's it's, great. Yeah. It's sometimes it I forget until we take people back there when they come in town to visit because like we just don't get out that much anymore. Sure. Sadly. Um, but whenever we do end up going there and I see that video, I mean, it definitely gives you the feels because I'm like, oh, this is where it all began. Yeah. How sweet. <laughs> like, if it hadn't been for that place, we probably never would have met. So probably not. Oh, that's awesome. It's very special. It's wild because it really speaks to like what the heart of the bourbon community is all about, that it is all about bringing people together to share great experiences. And sometimes you never know. It, it leads to love. Aww. And sometimes it leads to us talking about serial killer movies. Oh, so. daggone right it does. <laughs> Brad, this is your first time watching The Silence of the Lambs. It's time for us to move into the segment that we call Brad Explains. 
This is where Brad breaks down the plot of the movie that he has just seen, often for the first time. If you are a first-time listener to our podcast, the whole conceit behind this podcast is that I am a huge movie nerd. Brad has not seen a lot of these classic movies and is encountering a lot of them for the first time, and we drink whiskey together while we talk about it. So Brad, this is your shining opportunity to talk about this movie that has terrified you from childhood. As you know, Brad, we have implemented a strict 60-second Brad Explains limit this uh, this season. Can you break down the plot of The Silence of the Lambs for our listeners in under 60 seconds? Man, I was I was really hoping to like have as much time as possible and just be like, we start alone, Jodie Foster <laughs> running through the woods. Right. <laughs> yeah, Bob, I would love to explain it. Uh, the Silence of the Lambs is a psychological thriller about a young FBI student named Clarice Starling, who is tasked with interviewing an old serial killer uh, who was a cannibal named Hannibal Lecter. And Hannibal is helping her to solve a case that is happening now of a new serial serial killer named Buffalo Bill, uh, who is skinning his captives alive. Uh, And so the relationship between Hector and Starling is kind of the centerpiece of the movie. Hannibal is actually a psychiatrist. He's Dr. Hannibal Lecter. And so he's delving into her history and her past and and trying to glean as much as he can to find anything interesting to go on in this prison cell that he is stuck in. And at a certain point later in the movie, uh, Hannibal kind of arranges a transfer to a new prison. He escapes, kills some guards, wears a face, and Jodie Foster finds her way with Hannibal's help to the new serial killer's lair, and she is able to uh, hunt down and kill the serial killer Buffalo Bill in his lair. And time. In his lair. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah, I was trying not to say lair twice in a row. I'll tell you what, man. She saves the day, man. What else do you call a serial killer's dwelling? Yeah, I know. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) But I, I have to end with one of the greatest ending lines in the history of cinema. I'm having having an old friend for dinner. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. (laughs) Okay, so I I just have to uh, share something real quick. So Sarah and I watched this, what would you say, two or three weeks ago now? Uh, I would say it was at least a month ago. Yeah, probably a month ago. Um, We probably watched it a a little bit too far out from from our recording. But we were excited. Um, We'd both seen it before, but we hadn't seen it in a long time. But anyway, so today we're like, Let's watch one of those recap videos on YouTube, just you know, just to refresh our memories since it's been a month. This guy who was doing it, it was like one of those you know recaps in five minutes. He ruined, ruined, ruined the the best line. He said, and then Hannibal Lecter says, "I'm having an old friend over for dinner." No, that's not the line. <laughs> no, that's not the line. That actually takes everything out of the line. That pisses me yeah. off, actually. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, everything about that line, it's the way Hopkins delivers it, right? Mm -hmm. Like he just has this perfect, immaculate enunciation that leaves absolutely no room for thinking anything other than what he's about to do. Yeah. Well, Brad, I think that's a really good transition into talking about the performances in the movie. And I think we should really focus on, on the three kind of main characters here in Lecter, Starling and Buffalo Bill. And since you've already brought up Anthony Hopkins, let's talk about Hannibal Lecter. He is one of the most iconic villains in cinema history. Anthony Hopkins wins the uh, Best Actor Oscar, despite only being in the movie for, I think, 20 minutes. 
Like, and, and the funny thing is he totally deserved it. Like, even if he was only on screen for 20 minutes, uh, I, I mean, this is going to sound stupid to rhyme, but like, I was thinking through the whole movie, the specter of him is hanging over the whole movie. And I wish I could think of a better word than the specter of Lecter, but like, it really does. <laughs> like, there's just this sense that at all times he is operating in the background. There's this this sense of dread that comes over you, knowing that he's out there after he escapes. It is a commanding performance from Anthony Hopkins. But I will say the thing that really struck me this time through, Brad, is that I think that what makes it rewatchable isn't just the scary parts, isn't just when he's kind of toying with Clarice. It's how sassy he is at times and how kind of snarky he is. You can really tell that Hopkins is having fun with this role and that even though he's a terrifying villain, he really does kind of have an ease about him as well. Oh, yeah. There's a few moments, especially early with him, where I actually like almost laughed out loud with some of his dialogue. Like he's so witty and sharp in in his in the way he delivers his lines. And also, I think that the script in this movie is overall like, you know, it's pretty good. It's not the best script I've ever seen for a film. However, the writing for Hannibal is just so good. It's just over the top in its ability to capture this this insanely precise mind that thinks through everything to the nth degree. And Brad, one of the things that I really, really loved is the way that they introduce him. You know, you're coming down that hallway full of just deranged psychopaths who are progressively more and more violent in their behavior towards Clarice. And you know that this guy is at the end of the hall. And you're looking at this hallway like from her point of view and all of a sudden it comes kind of around the corner and you just see Anthony Hopkins standing there calmly, passively, and like he doesn't look imposing at all. And when he says hello, it's like a very cordial like hello. And you're like, who is this? This is the serial killer. And then they use the rest of that scene to just slowly crank up the tension. And it gets to the point where like he's really mad that she has been sent to screw with him. And he decides to toy with her instead. And it really becomes like this kind of psychological torture throughout that scene. And then, you know, later on, when you find out that he's been like whispering to the guy in the cell next to him to the point where he swallows his own tongue. It's super believable because you've seen already how much damage and how much torture he can do to Clarice just in that one little sequence that they have. Yeah. And I, I love villains like that, that, you know, he's, as you said, as she's walking down the hall that they're basically like mad dogs. And then you come to Hannibal and he's, you know, just very calm and collected. I love villains like that because obviously he's the most deadly of all of them in that entire hallway, but he's the most composed and those type of villains in, in cinema, I think are the more compelling, of course. Yeah. He feels like this Moriarty type of villain. That's just so far beyond everyone else that you're like, how did he even get captured in the first place? I read a fun fact that Anthony Hopkins uh, convinced the director that his jumpsuit jumpsuit should be white instead of orange because it would be more unsettling, like to see the stark white in that dark cell like mm. that instead of the orange. And I don't know why, but I when I thought about that, I was like, actually, I, I think that it was a good choice because mm -hmm. it does. It feels weird, like a little off kilter. Like, why? Absolutely. Why would they put him in white? It also makes him feel a little less pedestrian. Like if it was just orange, you would just feel like a normal, right? Your everyday, everyday criminal. Yeah, but exactly. Yeah, white, white's almost more like 
it, it like uh, elevates him, you know, like as a like a straight jacket or yeah. asylum. Yes, very much. Yeah. So, Chad, I want to ask your opinion on something as, as a videographer, especially. There's a thing that the director of this movie, Jonathan Demi, is known for, and they call it the Demi close up. And if you notice, every time there's a close up in this movie or, or almost every time, the characters that are being shot are looking straight down the barrel of the camera. They're essentially breaking the fourth wall. And it's not something that you see in a lot of movies. Like you try to keep eye lines consistent and you try not to break the 180 degree rule, they call it. But in this movie, you are put directly in the position of whoever is, you know, listening to the person in the close up. And when it's on Hannibal Lecter and he is staring right down into your soul, it is incredibly unsettling. So, I, I mean, I guess I just wanted to pick your brain. Did did you notice the camera work in that aspect and, and what other kind of visual things stood out to you in the movie? Yeah, I think Sarah and I both kind of picked up on that pretty quickly. Um, and, it, and it's really, I think, to kind of comment on how Clarice is being observed yep. by by men in the movie because she is always looking off to the side and people are always looking directly into the camera when they're speaking to her. And it's really the only time that uh, Jodie Foster looks directly into the camera is when she's talking to her female friend. I think they're like doing laundry. I think they're sitting on like a washer and dryer or something and they're going over the case files and she looks directly into the camera, which is her friend and her friend looks directly into the camera, which is to uh, Clarice. But every other time, if it's looking directly into the camera, it's a man talking to her and she's always the one with the eye line off. Mm -hmm. And I thought that's obviously very deliberate. And um, I think it's something that the audience can, can pretty easily pick up on. Well, and one of my favorite interactions, I'm so glad you brought up how men observe her throughout the movie, because one of the key things that, you know, Hannibal talks about is this idea of sight. Like, what do we see? We see what we want. And it brings in this idea of covetousness. What is the first and principal thing he does? What needs does he serve by killing? Anger. Um, social Acceptance in uh, sexual frustrations. Right? No, he covets. That is his nature. And how do we begin to covet, Clarice? Do we seek out things to covet? Make an effort to answer now. No, we just... Now we begin by coveting what we see every day. And it feels like all of these men in the movie have so many different various feelings when they see Jodie Foster walking into the room. And yet the only person in the entire movie that really truly respects Jodie Foster for who she is and treats her like she's really brilliant is Hannibal. Yeah. Like she kind of gets that from her boss. Um, the I can't remember his name right now. Who Who's the guy that it's, like calls her in? Jack, Jack Crawford? Yeah, Scott Glenn yeah. is the actor. Yeah, Scott. Yeah, Scott Glenn. Uh, so Crawford calls her in, he kind of treats her with, with respect and he learns to do that. You know, she basically tells him like, Hey, like if you treat me like crap, everybody else is too. Right. Um, but, but it's just fascinating to me that the only person who looks her dead in the eye and not just for her physical beauty is Hannibal Lecter. And he's the one who, who treats her well. And I, that, I think things like that are what make a script even better. Yeah, I think that's what's the most disturbing 
for me, I mean, when you think about it, because they present him in that way as like the only person who really tries to get to know her, the only person who's like really super direct with her, um, as like he, he he's the most terrifying man in the movie. Um, and yet w- we feel like he's giving her, I don't know, the most respect, the most uh, like acknowledgement. And then there's all these other people in her life who are who, sh- you know, should be coworkers or bosses or whatever and be respectful. And then we see, like Chad was saying, like, just uh, there's like the elevator scene where yeah. mm. everyone's bigger than her and she's made to feel small. And then there's the scene at the morgue where like everyone turns and looks at her at once. There's just all these scenes where she's definitely not in the same position as she is when she's talking to Hannibal. But that's weird because he is a terrifying serial killer. Yeah. Very polite. And I'm so glad that everyone like is picking up on this too, because I definitely noticed it this time. uh, Jonathan Demi is perfectly willing to kind of get out of the rhythm of the editing in order to showcase that too. Like, and it made me think about there's, you know, there's this concept in, in like film studies that's called the male gaze. And essentially it's, it's when a director who is usually a male is using the camera in a way that a, a man would look at a woman lustily. So like, if you think about the way that Michael Bay would film Megan Fox in the Transformers movies, where it's just super objectifying, the camera lingers in places that it shouldn't linger. And this movie it is all about the male gaze, but it's totally condemning it. And so, like, mm-hmm. you have these scenes where it's like two characters are talking and then like one character will walk off screen and the camera will just linger on the second person for a while. And you're kind of wondering, like, why didn't they cut away there? But as the movie kind of builds and they do it more and more, you start to realize that Demi is doing this thing where he is like implicating all of the men in the movie in being just huge creeps and huge pervs. Like there, there's even a little scene where it's um, Cassie Lemons and Jodie Foster are just out for a jog and all of the, the male FBI trainees who jog past them all turn to fully look at turn them. around. Yeah, all <laughs> yep. of them do. It's like that meme. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I just I really love that, you know, even the people who you think are trustworthy people, like at the very end of the movie, there's another guy that graduates the academy with them. And he like he grabs one of them and says, hey, let's take a picture together. And you can tell how uncomfortable she is. And I just I really love that they subtly worked this critique into the movie that even while we're looking at the things that Buffalo Bill is doing to these people, he is not, you know, so far down the road that we can't identify what's driving him. Like it, it's very perverse, but that perversity is is present in a lot of people in this movie. Yeah, I think you totally hit the nail on the head there. Like we're seeing Buffalo Bill as being like the extreme version of this, but then the rest of the movie is filled with everyday instances of things that are in the same vein, but not as extreme as what he's doing. Right. Yeah. And can we talk about the bug guy? Remember when she goes to get the uh, moth as a moth? Yeah, she goes to get analyzed. the moth identified at like a library or it's some sort of a. So one of the actors there, one of the two bug guys, <laughs> bug scientists, um, was cross eyed. <laughs> bug guy one, bug guy two. Yeah, bug guy two. He was uh, cross eyed in one eye and he was looking, and I think that had to be on purpose, hmm. right? There's no, he, they wouldn't have just casted that actor just because. Right. So his right eye was looking in and his left eye was looking at. Clarice. 
Yeah, and I don't know what that could be like a commentary on, though, but I agree with you. It had to be intentional because well, it's he like, asked her out. He asks her out and he comes across very nice. So I think but it's like a 50 But she's still there to do a job. Yeah. So it's like, is he being nice? Is he being a creep? We're not really sure. I think he's sort of in the middle. Right. He's sort of in the middle. Like, like his eyes. Well, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I am like, I'm nerding out over here right now. I'm so happy that we're breaking down this movie at such a deep level. Uh, but before we go to break, Brad, I do want to hit on these other two performances, uh, especially let's talk about Jodie Foster, because we've been talking about the way everyone in the movie looks at her. You know, Brad and I were texting before we recorded this episode. I kind of asked him what his general thoughts on the movie were. And of course, on your first viewing, Anthony Hopkins as Hannibal Lecter is really going to stand out. But for me, you know, having seen this movie a few times now, I think the best performance to rewatch is Jodie Foster because she is doing just so much subtle stuff in her performance where it's almost like, you know, because her character goes from being a little more timid to a little more assertive. You you see that slow transformation throughout the movie. But also just as an actress, I think she knows that some of these other performances are much bigger and much more showy. Like Hannibal Lecter is a big showy performance. Buffalo Bill is a big showy performance. And she's really just content in a lot of scenes to kind of support that other person. And I re- her performance really blew me away this time. I, I mean, it was she absolutely deserved the Oscar that she won. But I think in a lot of ways, she even tops what Anthony Hopkins is doing here. Well, what I think what was really, truly amazing about her her performance is the fact that she plays this dichotomy so well. Like in the face of 99% of the characters of the movie, she comes across as a slightly demure but confident young woman who recognizes that she is a student, who recognizes that she's, you know, not like a top detective at the FBI. She's just kind of there to do her job. And she's kind of cool, calm, confident, and relaxed. But when it comes to Hannibal, the only person who truly respects her in this movie, he is the only one where you see the other side of her performance. And I think that is what gives her performance strength is those moments where she breaks down just in the slightest because Hannibal is actually paying attention to her, is actually like looking into her soul and trying to dig at things that have been bothering her her entire life. And so I think it's that dichotomy of a performance where she presents this front to the entire world, except for the serial killer. That like that is what makes her performance so powerful. Yeah, and I thinking about that, I was wondering like this kind of goes against what we were just talking about, but the front that she puts out, right, is a form of control, right? She's in all these situations with coworkers and things. And so she's putting that forward as like, that is her way of controlling the situation. But I think when she's with Hannibal, he gets below the surface and into her past at things that I think throw her off kilter and she loses control. And I think that's what brings out those elements of her character that are so interesting of like, who is she when, when she's not putting that mask on? Yeah, for sure. And then so I think we go from the most complex character in the movie in Clarice to the least complex character in a lot of ways in Buffalo Bill. And I feel like they try to do a lot to set him up. Like they talk about his motivations. They talk about, you know, uh, there's a lot of conversation about, like, is he transsexual? No, he's not. He just wants to, you know, metamorphose into something else. 
And and I was really looking forward to them getting a little bit more in depth with his character, but they never really do. And I think if I do have one complaint with the movie, it's that they spend so much time developing the Hannibal Lecter and Clarice relationship that Buffalo Bill's really not in the movie that much. Like he comes in, I think, like 35, 40 minutes into the movie, and he really only has like three long scenes and that's it. And so like by the two thirds point where Hannibal Lecter escapes from his cell and they really shift hard into the Buffalo Bill stuff. I didn't find that like as I don't know, as compelling as I I wished it was, because it really did seem like a hard left turn into, okay, now we're going to follow this guy who we haven't really set up very well and we haven't really given you a lot to work with. I don't know. Did you guys have the same vibe? You know, it's a balancing act with those three characters. And of course, this is based off a book. So the book dives more into his past. But it's kind of like, do you try to flesh out three characters to the detriment of them not getting flushed out as much? Or do you really flesh out Clarice and Hannibal and kind of put Bill on the back burner Hmm. just so you don't have an overstuffed movie? I, I bet there was, you know, discussion discussion about that but you know through through the buffalo bill stuff we're still with clarice at least there in the end and i think it's more about the story's more about her triumph over that uh you know being out in the field with such a danger for the first time than it is about buffalo bill himself yeah yeah i think one of the the problems with buffalo bill as a character is the one specific moment where it gives a close up on his lips and he just says multiple times in a row, like, would you F me? Like, and he just kind of repeats that over and over. He goes, yeah, yeah, I would. And I, for me, that was just this reduction of him as like, oh, he's just a sexual deviant. Like you've been, you've been given this brilliant mind of Hannibal Lecter who just is immaculate in the way he thinks about things. And it just feels like Buffalo Bill is a crude, cheap imitation Mm. of Hannibal Lecter. And I don't know, maybe they were trying to go for that. But for me then, it it, it kind of lessened the impact of of what you were going for with Buffalo Bill as a serial killer. Yeah, Brad, I think that's that's a good point. And that's kind of giving voice to what I was thinking too. And I think that, that Ted Levine, who plays Buffalo Bill, is fantastic. I think he really plays that role well. He brings a little bit of nuance to that character that isn't really there on the page. But you're right. I think like especially setting it up where you see Hannibal escape and you know that this criminal mastermind is out there in the world somewhere that just kind of cutting back to Buffalo Bill and finding out, like you said, that they're kind of just reducing him to uh, being a sexual deviant. Like he never really had the 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 threat of Hannibal. Like I always felt more threatened by Hannibal than I did by Buffalo Bill. And I do think that like if there is something to nitpick with this movie, it would be the way they handle that. Yeah. I mean, Hannibal as a threat. Like, I think the way you can sum him up as a threat is that at the end of the movie, you know, right before he delivers the, you know, one of the best ending lines of all time, he says what I think to be why he is a threat. And he says to Clarice, oh, don't worry. You know, I am not going to call, you know, call a visit or pay a visit to you. The world is much more interesting with you in it. And the the threat there is. If I didn't think you were interesting, I could kill you 
no, like no questions asked. Yeah. There's no way anybody could stop me. But I think the world's more interesting with you in it. So I'll leave you be for now. It's like this ultimate power play that is just so calmly and coolly delivered that, yeah, Buffalo Bill just isn't really even a threat compared to Hannibal Lecter. He's definitely more two-dimensional. And I think that they try to get there. Um, Obviously, again, like Chad said, it comes from the books, but like they bring up things that allude to like, why is he the way he is? What kind of, you know, he's going through some sort of transformation. Um, Obviously, he's in some sort of stage of psychosis and like they connect the transformative stuff back to the moth and like the cocoon to the full-blown moth and all that stuff. But I agree. I think as somebody who really likes to learn about serial killers and why they do what they do, um, I do feel like they really didn't deliver on connecting the dots all the way around on on him and like, why is he so scary? Because he is the headline murderer of the movie, even though Hannibal's this technically comes across the scariest. Uh, he's for the most part of the movie, he's in a prison cell locked up in in someone else's control. So we have this guy out there running on the loose and yet somehow he comes across as less scary. Yep. I think it kind of makes sense uh, when you think about it because it's a more nuanced script that way. Like if Hannibal Lecter is the boss battle, okay? And um, Buffalo <laughs> Bill- Speaking my language. Yeah, Buffalo Bill is, you know, just uh, an end level baddie. Um, Buffalo Bill can be defeated, but Hannibal- cannot so you know Mm. it's kind of scarier that way like yeah there's these psychopaths out there who are just sexual deviants like you said reduced to something as uh, simple as that and then there's the the real intellects that are much scarier because they are uh, both a, a genius and a killer that will not be caught they cannot be caught, um, whether it's, you know, from Clarice or anyone else of her colleagues. I think that kind of, it makes it less of everything's tied up in a nice neat bow at the end of the movie. Yeah, you got the bad guy, but you didn't get the big bad. Yeah, yeah. Wow, guys, I am so enjoying talking about this movie. We are like really deep into talking about this movie at this point. I don't want to press pause, but we do need to get to our whiskey for the day. So what do you all say we try this old tub? Let's do it. Uh, do I have to drink out of a tub? <laughs> not not today. So today we are checking out Old Tub. Now, this is a bottled in bond bourbon that comes from the Jim Beam Company. Uh, Brad, this has a really interesting backstory. Uh, I will spare everyone the gory details of the rich history of this 100 proof bourbon. But uh, for, for a long time, they were only selling this as kind of like a touristy visitor special thing. You could only get it at one of their distilleries. It was the one in Claremont, Kentucky. And so if you went in, you could buy a pint of Old Tub for like 20 bucks. 
And when you and I went to Kentucky a couple of years ago, I really wanted to get up there and try this old tub. I'd heard really good things about it for being kind of a budget bargain whiskey. We didn't get a chance to. And then all of a sudden they decided we're going to take this brand national. And so they have, you know, gone. They have upgraded from having just pints of it to offering them in a fifth. It is still an incredibly affordable bourbon. We'll get into what we think of the price on this and, and if it's worth buying Brad, had you heard of Old Tub before we worked it into the show here? No. Nice. There it is. <laughs> no, but <laughs> Bob, I had not heard of Old Tub before. And honestly, I, there was part of me that was like, man, you just you hear certain names of whiskeys and you're like, oh, that's going to be a cheap whiskey, isn't it? <laughs> and when you hear the name Old Tub, you don't necessarily think like, mm, yes, this is a Glenmorangie Old Tub. Right, right. But but at the same time, Brad, you and I are huge fans of getting a whiskey for a steal. And I think this really could qualify, depending on what we think of it. Now, again, coming from Jim Beam, it is said to have that signature Jim Beam kind of nuttiness that you get on the nose and on the taste. You know, we had that, Brad, when we looked at Knob Creek, when we looked at, you know, Booker's, they all really have that sort of signature Jim Beam flavor profile. So as all of us get into the nose here, what are some of the notes that you're picking up, Brad? Is that nuttiness coming out for you? No. Really? Mm, really? <laughs> yeah, it's like jumping out of the no. glass for me. No man. judgment, but you're wrong. <laughs> yeah, 100%, Brad. <laughs> all right. I'm sorry. Tell him. I'm just kidding. Tell him what we have for him. It's a lovely parting gift. Right. <laughs> yeah, no, for me, I come to the nose and it, it's a little bit potent. I, I feel like it hits me a little strong. I try to blow out some of that alcohol and it's it's just lingering for me. I get I get some nice vanilla, some oak, a little bit of corn, but I'm not hitting a ton of nuttiness. Uh it's it's not coming out for me. For me, the the nose here. It's not enough of something to make me like it. So I'm I'm going to give it a five out of 10 on the nose. Wow. Yeah, Brett, I, I'm having a completely different experience. And I know for a fact we're drinking the same whiskey because I gave you a sample out of my bottle of this. And for me, this is all just peanuts and like really waxy kind of nuts like uh, like cashews. Um, there is, like you said, there's some oak here. I don't get a lot of oak char. It's kind of like a younger wood smell to me. And you're right, like it's it's a little bit aggressive on the nose. There's definitely some alcohol present, but at 100 proof, I would expect that. I really dig this this nosing profile here. I'm actually going to give this an 8 out of 10. Now, are you guys drinking out of the same type of glass? I'm yeah, I'm drinking out of a Glencairn. I believe Brad is too. Yep. So mine's been sitting out for a bit. Um, so I might be having a different experience than you, but I'm kind of having more of Bob's experience. I'm getting like nuttiness on the nose, but for me, it's more pecans and mm. I'm getting like salted caramel and pecans, which I find that sounds delicious to me right now. <laughs> um, yeah, I get what you're saying. There's more, you know, a bit of alcohol coming through, but I think for the price uh, and the proof that is also to be expected. But for me, it screams Jim Beam. Sure. And I was I was kind of getting, um, you know, sort of some some powerful ethanol uh, on it when I was first really nosing it. So what I did is I just blew into my glass. Just kind of did that. Sound effects. And then I went back and <laughs> it's not it's not as harsh anymore if you do that. And actually, after I did that, I kind of got some popcorn. So I think it is that corn mm. that you're talking about, but specifically like buttered popcorn along with the nuttiness. That's obviously there. 
I, I kind of feel like those are almost givens on a on a Jim Beam, but um, yeah, caramel corn. What do you think out of ten? I gave it. I, I mean, was it's gonna go more seven. Yeah, I was. I gave it a yeah. seven. I gave okay. it a seven. It, it is good, but you know, I've we've also smelled some exceptional stuff. So right. I think it, yeah. You know, if I'm thinking of all of all time, it mm-hmm. is. Ta- it smells nice though. Yeah. I like yeah. It. Yeah. Yeah, I think that caramel is coming across for me a little bit more as like a Coca-Cola kind of nose. And I, mm, I like that cola that. note as well. Um, so you both went seven on this. Brad went five. I went eight. All right. So we have our first score here. And that means that it's time for us to taste it. So let's all give it a sip. And Brad, I'm sure that you've already been sipping on it and ready to just eviscerate it based on your nose score. So what are you picking up here on the taste? Honestly, it's not as bad on the on the palate as it is on the nose for me. There's a decent bit of vanilla coming through for me that that hit me on the aroma. Here I get a little bit more of that caramel, a little more buttery smooth of a of a flavor profile than I had on the nose. Uh it's still not popping for me or like overwhelming me, but I'm going to bump my score up a little bit. I'll give it a six and a half. I'm getting a little bit of that nuttiness that I was getting on the nose. Um I still think for me it's in like a lighter nuttiness like a pecan. Um, maybe like a walnut or something like that. But I, now that coming off of our, you know, nose notes, I actually get the cola that you mentioned. Hmm. And it's almost like a, and I, I don't really drink soda that much. So for me, it's reminding me of something like a chocolatey vanilla cola or like a the bottom of a root beer float or something like hmm. that uh, yeah. with some of those oaky notes too. Yeah, I I'm glad you said root beer, Sarah, because with this whole when the whole cola discussion got brought up, Bob, I was kind of like, yeah, OK, I can. And, and then it kind of went in that area, almost like a root beer float, because there is that vanilla in there. So I'm uh, kind of like when a, uh, a root beer float kind of froths and you just sort of mm-hmm. before you get to the real cola part, you kind of drink that froth. That's sort of what I'm getting. For the nuttiness, it's sort of like, for me, it's a cross between like a salted peanut and a dry pecan. Hmm. But I am getting the rice spice in there, the butter popcorn, caramel, and a little bit of brittle sort of in Whoa, there. Oh, Chad. Wow. Yeah, which is, you know, pre- pretty good. Just, just pretty put good. us so all the shade here, Chad. The movies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's all go to the lobby. To the movies. <laughs> let's all go to the lobby. I don't know about the rest of you, but... I'm picking up almost all the notes that you're you're talking about here, but I also wouldn't really classify this as an overly sweet bourbon. Like I, all the notes we're talking about are sweet things, but this sure. like the the lingering notes for me on this, I think this is really alcohol forward. I mean, it is 100 proof. And Brad and I have talked before about how sometimes things in this kind of 100 to 110 proof range, the alcohol can seem more harsh than a barrel proof for some reason. And I really do think the alcohol is front and center here and the oak is really front and center here. I get a lot of that kind of like, uh, Sarah, you talked about chocolate a little bit too. I do get some kind of dark chocolate notes on this as well. And, you know, it does have your classic bourbon profile. But again, like, I don't think that it tips into like lingering sweetness on the palate. I'm only going to give this one like a six and a half on the palate. (gasps) Same. Shock. Oh, man. Are we all at a six and a half? No, I'm at a seven and a half. Oh, oh all right. Wow, boo. I think, and I, and I might be kind of unfairly rating it, knowing what the price is and all, yeah. and all that. Yeah. But I gave it a seven and a half. I think for a, a, and I'm kind of comparing it to other bottled and bonds in its price range, which I probably admittedly shouldn't be doing. But I'm kind of thinking of the Evan Williams bottled and bond. I'm thinking of JTS Brown. I'm thinking of JW Dant. And, 
but except maybe Evan Williams bottom and bond, I think it's kind of going above those other guys. So I don't know. I think for a, for a non-chill filtered BIB, it's got a taste of a 7.5 for me. And that rhymed. Uh, well, so here's the thing, Chad on the nose. We, we judged it based on what's the 10 out of 10, the best thing we've ever known. I know that's why. I and then on the taste, you're like, well, compared to other bottled and bonds. <laughs> and I don't disagree with you. If we've, this was just mindset compared to other bottled and bonds, I would have also given this a higher score, but I thought we were doing just in general. Well, so. we are. Tell you what, I'm going to take it down no, to no, no. seven even. Oh, goodness. Seven. Look what I've point. done. Listen, oh. we, we are wildly inconsistent in how we score things, too. Because <laughs> Oh, yeah. Because like we always say that we're trying to be objective. And like you said, Sarah, like based on the best we've ever had. But it is impossible to not keep the price tag in mind when you're drinking right. something that's on the cheaper end of the spectrum. And so. Sure, because. A $25 whiskey isn't supposed to taste like a $200 whiskey. Like, they're not supposed to be comparable. Yeah, so, exactly. I mean, it's fair. Exactly. And that takes us from our taste scores into our finish scores. I guess I'll just go first real quick. I don't think this has, like, an overwhelmingly great finish. It's it's pleasant. It doesn't burn too badly. The Kentucky hug on this is not, like, it, it doesn't uh, scorch your esophagus on the way down, but it definitely is warming. It's not it's not a dry finish. It definitely is mouth watering. But still, again, like the predominant flavor that's left on my palate is the oak. So if you're into something like that, it's it's not super short. It's a little bit lingering. You know, again, given the price, I'm going to give it again a six and a half out of ten on the finish. I'm 100 percent on the same page as you, um, but I think I'm going to go a six out of ten. Yeah, Sarah, I'm actually right there with you. I, I think that this has, like you said, Bob, it's got that oakiness. I get a little bit of spice um, as it starts moving down the, the throat. Um, and I will I will admit, uh, I will I will fully admit, the last like breath that I had of this bourbon, I was kind of like, oh, that was a little bit like peanut butter. All right. Mm, there you maybe, go. Maybe there it, it is. is there. There it <laughs> but is. But that was the only hint of nuttiness I had throughout the entire experience. I'll give it a six out of ten on the finish. It's decent, uh, but it's not blowing me away. Okay, I I actually think just to disagree a little bit with you, I think it's a tad dry. Um, but I am getting some rice spice on the back end, and it's almost a little tart or something. There's some there's some little yeah uh, un <laughs> undefined. Uh, Something rather. And I'm not really getting a hug on this one. For a hundred proofer, I'm not getting a Kentucky hug, which should I feel like it should be there. I want it to be there anyway. I always want it to be there. Mm. So I'm also yeah. giving it a six out of ten. I think that note that you're picking up is the tub. Ah <laughs> yeah. that's what it is. It's Old tub grimy element. tub. It's there that, it uh, is. Funk. Yeah, that's right. All right. So that takes us into our balance score. Now, the way we define balance here on the podcast is Take your nose, taste, and finish experiences and consider them as one cohesive whole. It doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, what you picked up in the nose had to be there in the taste and the finish, but we're looking more at was there a peak and then like a huge valley or was it one nice drinking experience throughout? So knowing that, Brad, where would you put this on the balance score? I think I'd give it a seven. Like it's overall pretty well balanced whiskey. You, what I got on the aroma was a little softer than what I ended up tasting and finishing with. But overall, it's it's decent. It's solid. I, I think that you can tell that this is a high quality budget bourbon. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah, I think it. Um, I kind of hate using the word 
smooth, because really, what does that mean? But I think it drinks a little smoother than the nose gives off. Um, but I think altogether, nose, the palate, the finish, I think it's pretty cohesive. Nothing's really jutting out. I would say maybe the finish might be the thing that's lacking just a little bit, but I would also give it about a seven. For me, I agree that the finish definitely wasn't where I hoped it would be based on the palette. Um, but I thought that the nose was not a huge departure, but I was really looking forward to something from all the notes that I got on the nose that I don't feel like is what it necessarily delivered on on the palette. There was a lot of overlap there, but it wasn't, I don't know, I think I was, my expectations weren't exactly met. And then to end with that finish that that was a little lackluster um, made me give it a 6.5 on the balance. However, I, again, for the price, I do think that it delivers. I mean, it's an enjoyable experience. It's not all over the place. Yeah, I'm right there with you guys. This is, you know, it's enjoyable. It's not knocking my socks off in any way. And, you know, again, we were talking about Jim Beam products. I think that if we were comparing this to Knob Creek at 100 proof, I would choose Knob Creek over this probably any day of the week. But again, that's that's kind of a little bit comparing apples to oranges because of the significant price difference between this and Knob Creek. So, yeah, I'll give it a 7 out of 10 on the overall balance And that is going to take us to our value score. This is the final score that we do. We do consider value in our reviews here. I mean, if you're only interested in the actual tasting experience, you can look at our first four categories. But we want to keep the, you know, the average everyday consumer in mind and look at where does this stand at the price point that it's at? Is it overpriced? Is it underpriced? Is it a huge bargain? And Brad, I picked this up when it was still only available in Kentucky uh, for $20.99. It has since expanded nationwide. I think in the state of Ohio, it's currently retailing at $21.99. For the price, this one's pretty hard to beat. Like Chad was talking about, you know, really the only thing at its price point that's available nationwide is that Evan Williams bottled and bond, which retails for about 18 bucks. And I think this is really comparable to that. I'm going to go ahead and give this an eight and a half on value. Yeah, that's what I gave it to. Um, and I, the reason why, too, is because when I know that Wild Turkey 101 is out there for a couple bucks less, I'm like, well, <laughs> you're almost yeah. there. You're almost at the top of the value, but not not quite. Personally, that's just a, a reliable pour for me. And if I can spend a little bit less money on it, then that's what I will do. Yeah, you know, the, the Wild Turkey... Um uh benchmark i hate using that because that's the name of another bourbon um the wild turkey uh it really draws a line in the sand yeah line in the sand the 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 pole i don't know the limbo pole i don't know the bar that it sets yes the bar um is definitely a good one and then you know you brought up knob creek and i can't believe i wasn't thinking about that knob creek 100 proof in our area is only $25. Right. So just oh, a couple bucks more. $3 more. I would definitely get Knob Creek 100 proof. Small batch. I think it's developed a bit more character. Yeah. And that one a little bit more depth. For sure. So I think that kind of dings it. But for what it is, I, I still gave it, I gave it an eight. Yeah. I'm sitting at a seven and a half. I like, you guys have said it all. It's a solid budget bourbon like it's not the most massively flavorful or complex whiskey you're gonna have but for 20 to 25 dollars you know depending on where you're getting it 
this is a really solid whiskey. It, it's a good pickup. And I think it's something that you can easily pull out on, a, you know, if you're having a bourbon night with some friends or if you're like Chad and you're having a cute girl over that you're interested in. You, you know, <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, let's just have a bourbon night. Oh, I'll pull out a few bourbons. Wait, Chad, I, I you've think been having could... cute girls over? Uh, I told you guys that in confidence. <laughs> oh, my <God. laughs> oh, man. Well, that has uh, been it's bourbon night. Um, this is their final public showing. Yeah, this is, you know, you guys got a got a scoop <laughs> oh man but yeah that's that's bringing me to a 31.5 out of 50 uh what, what's the total coming out to for you guys brad i'm actually a little bit higher than you i'm coming out to a 36.5 which means that our overall score put together is a 68 out of 100 or a 34 out of 50 typically where we fall on this is that if something hits the 35 mark we'll recommend buying a bottle um, I actually would still recommend buying a bottle because it's $21. Like it's it's even if you don't really care for it or if you think it's just like we do a solid pour, but nothing to write home about. You're only investing 20 bucks in this. I definitely think it's worth buying a bottle. I actually would not recommend getting a pour. You know, sometimes we say like, OK, if you don't want to get a bottle, go ahead and get a pour at a bar. You're going to spend so much on getting, you know, a one ounce sample of this that you might as well just go ahead and go whole hog and get get the uh, the bottle here. So. That's where we're coming out. Chad and Sarah, where are you guys on this one? I gave it a 34.5, which I feel like should just be rounded up to a 35 because I would recommend uh, for all the reasons that you've said that to go out and get a bottle of this. Yeah. And I was at a 35, 35 out of 50. So yeah. Right there on the cusp. And yeah, like you said, a pour to bar would probably be five to $6, which is a fourth of the bottle. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Right. They also sell a 375 for... $15, $15, which is also ridiculous. Just, Just get buy the, the full $750. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, honestly, these are the types of whiskeys that bars make just make bank off of. So go buy yourself a bottle. Uh, guys, I, I am just so thankful to have more whiskey experts on the show. Um, I think it enlightens Bob and I on just better ways of nosing and thinking through whiskey. So thank you guys so much for sharing your expertise here. Well, thanks for inviting yeah. us to share. Our pleasure. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's jump back in and finish our thoughts on this just classic of a thriller, Silence of the Lambs. So that was Old Tub, a whiskey that we all recommend, especially at the price point. And we are getting back into talking about The Silence of the Lambs. Brad, again, this is a Best Picture winner. You know, I've gone back and forth on my overall thoughts with this movie. I've always thought that this was a very well-made movie and a very good movie. But there's just always been something that kept me from thinking it was a great movie. And I'm, I'm trying to parse out, is it just because this movie changed the landscape of the serial killer movie forever and that we've just had 30 years of copycats because I really do think that even when you watch like criminal minds or things on TV now 
they resemble the Silence of the Lambs so much that I think maybe it's it's just that we're 30 years removed now and the shock value has kind of lost its effectiveness. I don't know. What do you guys think of that? Is it is it a movie that it has aged poorly or have we just seen so many copycats of this that it may not just hold up as well as we would like it to? I think that you're right there. Um, I think we've seen it so much in this vein over the past 20 years or gosh, 30 years almost since this was made. Wow. Um, that it feels almost like it's not going far enough, which is weird to think mm-hmm. about because it's like, what else do we want to see? Right. Um, but I think we got into that a bit when we were talking about wanting to see Bill go further. Like I think in 1991, when this movie came out, that this was enough and this was terrifying enough. Uh, and I, I'm sure it's probably like a product of the Internet. Right. And and a serial killer miniseries that we feel like now rewatching this again. And I've seen this so many times that it it feels a little safe. Um, yeah. But I still yeah, again, it, I've watched it over and over again. I definitely think it's a great film. In a weird sense, this film is still very shocking and it's very violent and you see things that you really can't unsee. And yet there is still an element of it that feels kind of like quaint. I don't know if there's another word I can use for that, but I think because it's just like a police procedural and you're following this FBI agent, it it never really made me think, oh, this is a horror movie. It was always more of like, okay, I, I would call it a thriller. I'd call it like Brad has been calling it a psychological thriller, but I don't know that I was ever actually terrified watching this movie i think and i'm going to try to articulate this the best way that i can but i think there's like two parts of this and how i'm thinking about it and that one it's a movie about the uncomfortableness and the terror that women can experience at the hands of men um Mm -hmm. which is not a new like again like we were just talking about it's not new subject matter uh We see stuff like that and hear stuff like that all the time. I think what is kind of groundbreaking and stuck with the movie is the way in which they communicate that visually and through sound, um, through that eye contact that we were talking about before, like those subtle ways that you can't even register sometimes that make it feel unsettling. That's, again, for the same reasons, you know, the male gaze that they're using that to make you feel uncomfortable. Um, And so that's what's really sticking with me as to why I think I find that it does hold up. Hmm. I, I kind of like what they are, are how they're making people feel uncomfortable with uh, with the uh, you know straight to camera and those type of things where if you're thinking about I know this isn't a horror movie but you know we said it it could kind of be classified that way like today it's always that really unsettling note on the violin that just plays like that single yeah. you know note and yep. things like that where I appreciate those things that have become tropes um i don't i don't think really anything from this movie besides sort of the story beats or the format mm-hmm. nothing really anything that they did didn't become a trope like right. they didn't have a bullet time you know where the matrix yeah, did it and it right. was revolutionary and then everyone did it and then it became a, a tired trope nothing from right. this movie kind of suffered because of that. Sorry, that's kind of what I was saying. Like yeah, the yeah, themes okay. and the plot and yeah. things like that. Mm-hmm. It's it very much, you know, run of the mill now. Yes. But I think the way in which they went about communicating it mm-hmm. is what really stood the test of time. Okay, yeah. And, and isn't something that you see a lot of now. Yeah. And nothing became, you know, nothing took me out of the movie because of the, the year that it was filmed, except... 
oh, well, she would just use her cell phone at this point. But, you know, there's so many movies that you could say that too. Like she could just call her boss on her cell phone if she had a cell phone, but it's 1991. And <laughs> yeah, right. So that right. really didn't bother me, but it doesn't have a whole, whole lot of rewatch value for me just because. Oh, see, I love. I love uh, yeah, re-watch Sarah rewatches it. it. Uh, for me, <laughs> there's always know, more notes you could take, more yeah. things to learn. Right. But I was just kind of thinking when you guys were talking, like it, it almost like you want it to push more now. It's like it's okay. It's not seven. I think seven was yeah, sort of like yeah. mm-hmm. the new Silence of the Lambs for its time, sort of type of thing. Okay, let's show more. Let's get a little bit more graphic. But the one thing that I I can't really forget about this movie is when Hannibal Lecter takes the guard's um, baton uh, when he's in the cell. Yeah, yeah. And he's just whacking him with that look on his face like he could have been making a cake or Mm -hmm. or something just so mundane. The look on his face when and the blood is splattering up on his white T-shirt and on his face. That, like, so much of this movie in its terror and its uneasiness comes from not just the camera work but from anthony hopkins performance i feel like i think the scene that sticks with me is when clarice is feeling around in the dark and buffalo bill has the night vision goggles on like i'm pretty sure that's the reason why as an adult i'm occasionally still afraid of the dark yes Um, Uh, yeah it's because who knows if there's a buffalo bill someone's got what's the lesson that we learned always carry night vision goggles in your purse (laughs) or a flashlight works too or that (laughs) what do you guys think well, Brad, I was going to ask you about this, too, because, you know, we've all watched this movie before, except for you. And we're talking about its rewatch value. And so maybe the best way to talk about that is to give out your Brad G award for this movie. So having come into it for the first time, what stuck out to you in this movie and what award would you give The Silence of the Lambs? Well, I, I feel like there's there's a number of different awards that you could give it. I'm actually going to draw in on the title of the movie and say that this film receives the award for the most terrifying story of childhood I have ever heard in my life. Because hmm. yeah. the idea of losing your mother as a what she portrayed as like a baby or infant or toddler and then losing your father when you're 10 and then going to a ranch in Montana and listening to lambs scream as they get slaughtered. What did you do? I went downstairs outside. I crept up into the barn. I was was so scared to look inside, but I had to. What did you see, Clarice? What did you see? Lambs. They were screaming. They were slaughtering the spring lambs. They were screaming. That is like one of the most horrifying, traumatizing (laughs) childhood experiences I've ever seen. And I don't know if there's any movie that can really top that story. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a good point. I think it's crazy how they connect it back to like what she's doing now, right? She's hunting a serial killer who's murdering innocent women, right? Absolutely. Um, Mm, Yeah. But as I I was listening to you guys talk, I, I had a few different thoughts. The mundane way that he looks at killing the guard with the, the baton is like counterimposed with the intensity and the interest that he looks at Clarice with, right? Like, Mm. it is human beings that he finds interesting, not the whole mundane nature of killing people. Mm. And I I just, I love that juxtaposition. And then when you guys were talking about it as like a crime procedural, 
I think the thing for me that makes this movie stand out and and really rise above all of the copycats that came after it is that you can tell that Demi is not using anything extraneous to the movie and he's not like pushing his way into anything that is familiar. And the two things that really stick, stuck out to me were her best friend and an opening scene that might feel meaningless, but she's training as an FBI agent and she gets fake killed because she doesn't check the corner, right? And what I loved about the movie is that it didn't fall into this like best friend giving advice trope. Like her her friend in the academy is just there for a few small moments and we don't have her for anything more than what we need. Like I feel like a lesser director easily could have had a six minute scene where she's conversing with her friend and like hashing out the details of the case and it would have taken forever and slowed the movie down and that would have happened in like a 43 minute TV episode. And the second thing was when she's going down the stairs into Buffalo Bill's house, my immediate thought was, oh, she's not going to check the corner because <laughs> that's just yeah, because that's just what directors and movies do. They set you up for checking the corner, quote unquote, and then the character like does it and it's heroic or they don't do it and they fail because of it. And then they didn't do that at all. They didn't they didn't like use that at all. And I was kind of like, oh, good job, Demi. Uh, I'm proud of you for not doing that, because if this is a TV show, it 100 percent would have played into the story completely. I think that's a good point. And, and that kind of brings me around to my final score on this movie. And I think I'll start with the final scores because I'm afraid that I might have the lowest final score of all of us. And it's not because I dislike this movie. Like I said, I have really gone back and forth on is this a very good movie or is it a great movie? And it's definitely a movie that people revere. Like it's, you know, if you go on IMDb, I think it's like number 23 all time. It's super well made. The first time I saw it, it was horrifying. I think it still holds up on rewatch. But like Chad said, it definitely loses something in the rewatch. And so I'm coming at this movie having seen it, you know, 10 times now, probably. I think I'm going to give it an eight and a half. Like it's a really well made movie. It won best picture, I think deservedly so. Um but I don't know if I would put it like in that all time ranking. And I was thinking about like serial killer movies and how they've developed over the years. And I think if I had to choose one serial killer movie to put over this, I think I'd put David Fincher's movie Zodiac over this movie. Like it, it has that sort of like procedural element to it. I think the suspense is really well done. And so I think that we've seen this movie done better over the years. But it's definitely still worth watching, especially because of everything we've talked about with, you know, condemning the male gaze and having such a, you know, a, a really strong female protagonist, which you still don't see in movies like this. So, yeah, I'm coming out to an eight and a half out of ten. Where's everybody else falling? Uh, I was leaning. I was leaning nine, nine out of ten, because I tried to put myself back in the shoes of the first time that I saw it and the impact that it had. I was shook after I watched that movie. So... <laughs> I, I got to go with that. And like I said, I continue to go back to it every couple of years. I'll be like, you know what? I'm going to watch that again because there's just something that's so, I don't know, comforting about, I know that sounds crazy, but the level of performance and like that I know what I'm going to get out of it. And yet I also know that there's going to be a level of intrigue every time I watch it, even though I know it's going to happen. I just don't find things like that all the time. So yeah, agreed. And I'm not stealing your score I, I i promise i thought this before but i also am gonna give it a nine i think that it's 
it's just a well-made movie on so many levels from the directing, from the performances, from the cinematography, um, that it just, it stands up, uh, it stands up to the test of time. So yeah, nice solid nine. Yeah. I, we're sounding like a broken record here, but I'm also going to give it a nine out of 10. I think that one of my favorite parts about this movie is how it is bookended. And, and I love when a director really takes into account how a movie starts and how it ends. And the way that the movie starts with this this truly kind of creepy uh, tone set by the music that Howard Shore has composed for it, as you watch Jodie Foster run alone through a forest kind of covered in fog a little bit, and it ends with Hannibal Lecter and the, this kind of creepy music playing once again as he slowly follows his next, you know, quarry down the road. Like there's just this sense of unease from start to finish in this film, and there's no resolution for it. Hannibal Lecter is a looming threat at the start of the movie, even though you don't know it yet. And he is a looming threat at the end of the movie just because he's alive. And there's something about that that just... I think it does stand the test of time. As somebody who's seen it for the first time 30 years since its inception, I, I'm all in, man. This is this is a great film. All right. Well, there you have it. I am the the lone person out here at an eight and a half, but not too far off of what everybody else is, is bringing to the table with a nine here. If you average out Brad and my score, you come out to an 8.75 out of 10. We would love to know what you think of this movie. Am I just way off base in giving it an eight and a half out of 10? You can reach out to us on our social media where you can find us at Film Whiskey on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Or you can leave us a voicemail. Uh, let your voice be heard on the Film and Whiskey podcast. You can check us out on anchor.fm slash film whiskey. Once again, we want to say thank you to our guest hosts, Chad and Sarah. It has been wonderful to have you here and break down this movie and offer your expertise on this whiskey. Thank you both so much for coming on the show. Before we head out, do you have anything that you'd like to plug? Sure. We've always got them plugs. That's right. <laughs> you know, the the best place to find us is on YouTube. That's youtube.com slash it's bourbonite. Uh, but we also have a Patreon page where you can get some extras. We do uh, a show called Another Round with Chad and Sarah, which is exclusive for Patreon. So that's patreon.com slash it's bourbonite. And then we have whiskeyambitions.com where we sell our merchandise. So we have our own Glencairns and Copita glasses, um, T-shirts, sweatshirts, new stuff is in the works so check it out absolutely and oh, blogs blogs are and there blogs, too and blogs and blogs and we're on um instagram ah, at, yes. at, at it's bourbonite yeah absolutely if you're not following them yet on youtube or on instagram go immediately their videos have been just super helpful and formative for us as we've continued to do this podcast over the years so once again chad and sarah thank you for joining us today Thank you so much for having us. This was so much fun. Yeah, our pleasure. I haven't gotten to talk about movies as much since college. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. All right, Brad and I are going to be back next week uh, in honor of International Holocaust Remembrance Day. We're going to be looking at the Best Picture winner from 1993, Schindler's List. So join us for that next week. But until then, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time. Next time.